And then, of course, Mike spoke to us movingly last week about the events in the garden where Jesus, faced with a, a, a horrific thing that was about to happen to him, nevertheless, knelt on his knees in prayer and said to his father, your will be done. Not my will, but yours. So this was on the Thursday evening. It was followed by his arrest by the Jewish authorities and by what amounted to a sham trial overnight on the Thursday, going into the early hours of Friday morning. Initially, the trial was a purely Jewish affair with the religious authorities effectively rejecting Jesus for who he was and charging him with blasphemy. But the Jewish leaders had no authority to put Jesus to death. That was something only the Romans could do. So now, they've got him, but they've got to take him to the Romans and convince the Romans to perform the execution. So, as I can say, as you can see, high drama. And this brings us to today's passage where Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, comes into the picture. So, let's read together from Luke 23. We're starting at verse 13. And you should get, yes, there we are. You've got it in uh, English and on Espanol for those that would like that. So, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the nation to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Herod was the governor of the northern province where Jesus' home was. As you can see, he has done nothing deserving of death. Therefore, said Pilate, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, Pilate spoke. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for. And surrendered Jesus to their will. So there we have it. Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. As I've already said, we know very little about this man. In Matthew's gospel, it said that he would have been well known at the time. He's mentioned in the other gospels. But apart from that, we don't know anything about him before this incident. And nor do we hear anything about him afterwards. As far as we know, he and Jesus would never have met. From the sequence of events on that Thursday evening, it's likely 
that after his arrest in the garden, Jesus was taken first to the house of the high priest and then to the Roman garrison where Pilate was staying. Barabbas, by contrast, probably spent the night in a Roman cell. And he knew at that stage what he was facing. It would have been a night of darkness for Barabbas. Messy, smelly, uncomfortable. The only thing to do, trying not to think about the terrible fate that awaited him the following day. But just imagine the story. As dawn started to break into day, Barabbas in his cell could hear the commotion of an assembling crowd somewhere nearby. And as the sound of the crowd intensified, he could even make out his own name in the chanting that was taking place. And then came the moment of dread for Barabbas when the door of his cell swung open, the rough hands of the Roman soldiers pulled him out into the daylight. But to his complete shock and probably disbelief, rather than being given a cross piece to carry to his execution, he was told that he was free to go. And he was released to disappear into the back streets of Jerusalem and somehow to try and make sense of what had just happened. What a dramatic turn of events. I wonder at what point Barabbas understood that Jesus was taking his place. We don't know. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us. But when you think about that fateful day from Barabbas's point of view, he ended it in a completely different place from where he started. So let's just think about some of those contrasts between the morning and the evening of that Friday from his point of view, because this tells us something about the difference that Jesus makes. For one thing, Barabbas started the day with a death sentence hanging over him, but he finished the day still alive, and he had a whole future ahead of him. The man who he had never met, Jesus, had taken his place and died in his stead. When you think about it, the fact that it was a murderer, a low-life criminal, who Jesus literally dies for, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? It's more than shocking. It should strike us as unthinkable. It really should. We should recoil from it. We're so used to it, aren't we? We sing the songs and he died for me and so on. But the man who Jesus literally dies for isn't a hero, isn't a prince or a king, somebody worthy, but a murderer. And yet somehow, in the divine orchestration of the events of that Friday, Jesus literally dies in the place of a man who's a nobody. And who apart from his brief appearance in the four Gospels, we would never even know existed. Can you feel how shocking that is? How inappropriate. It's a bit like the Christmas story, you know? At Christmas, we are all amazed, aren't we? We we sing of God coming down, and we talk about Jesus coming to earth, the Jesus through whom the universe was created, the Jesus who one day will return on a white horse with a banner saying, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one before whom every knee will bow. And then we remember at Christmas time that Jesus came not to a palace, not born of a mighty ruler, 
born to a simple peasant girl and her village carpenter fiancé. There's nothing appropriate about that, and yet it happened. And as with his birth, so with his death. What we would think of as the right outcome, that the guilty person is punished and that the innocent person goes free, that outcome is not the one that has been planned by God. Instead, the guilty and the innocent change places. Do you know, the early Christians thought very deeply about this exchange, this substitution, and realized it wasn't just the story of Barabbas. Let's just look at a few verses. Here's Paul writing to the Galatians about the death of Jesus. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That interesting language. He became what we should have been. And writing to the Corinthians, Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That exchange again. This is heady stuff, isn't it? But it's vital for us to grasp. I love this quote from uh, John Stott, famous Bible teacher. The biblical teaching of atonement is one of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is men and women substituting themselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Humanity asserts itself against God and puts itself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. Humanity claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. Isn't the gospel amazing? So, it turns out that what was true for Barabbas is also true for us. At the start of that Friday, he was a man under sentence of death. But by the end of the day, he was a free man, and Jesus had died in his place. But here's another comparison. At the beginning of that day, Barabbas had been living life the wrong way, doing the wrong things. But by the end of the day, he had the opportunity to start living the right way. He had been a violent man, as we've already said, not above using any means to achieve his ends. Murder, conspiracy, insurrection against the Romans. We don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us, whether he was somebody who gradually and reluctantly became like that, or whether he was just by nature a a nasty piece of work. We don't know. But however it had come about, he was living his life entirely the wrong way, with wrong values and with behaviors that were all out of kilter with how God wanted him to live. Do you know, here's the scary thing, folks. Barabbas may even have thought in doing what he did that he was acting the way God wanted him. 
You know, the Romans were in occupation of the promised land. And to the Jews, this was an affront to their religion. It was sacrilege. It wasn't a question of what have the Romans done for us. It wasn't like the John Cleese sketch that I mentioned earlier. For many Jews at the time of, of, of Jesus, there was a real anger about Roman occupation. And many thought that rebellion and uprising was their only option, whatever it costs. Their duty, they would have said, their calling. What they thought the God of their fathers would have expected. That could well have been Barabbas' mindset. I'm doing God's work. Hmm. You know, there's nothing worse than people end up doing the wrong thing because they think God wants them to do it. We have it today, don't we? We have it today, and in fact, without, throughout history, it sounds familiar to us. Nothing worse than justifying wrong behavior with the, with the phrase, God wants me to do it. And Barabbas wouldn't have been the only one. If, if he was determined to use violence to achieve his ends, he would have found himself in company. And do you know, he may even have been dissatisfied with Jesus. This is interesting, isn't it? I'm sure, like most of Israel, he would have heard about Jesus feeding the hungry, healing the sick, doing miracles, uniting so much of the nation in spiritual revival. But then he would have been puzzled. Why wasn't this miracle worker driving out the hated Romans? Do you know there was even a rumor that Jesus had, um, had spoken to one of the centurions and healed his servant. There was even a rumor that Jesus had gone up to a centurion and said, I admire your faith. What's, what's Jesus doing? Why isn't, he, why isn't he sorting this out if he's the Messiah? And Barabbas and many like him would have been puzzled and angry. And if you remember, even Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, didn't understand and eventually gave up on Jesus. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he'd been called to do. He understood that the kind of salvation that God the Father had in mind started by dealing with sin. Started with people being born anew by the Spirit of God. Started when people repented and turned to live according to the ways of God. He knew that the only change that really lasts comes from the heart. And it was the heart to the hearts and minds of men that Jesus appealed. So again, it turns out that what was true for Barabbas is also true of us. We can be living the wrong way. At the start of that Friday, Barabbas was a man living life the wrong way, living against God's plan and purposes. But by the end of the day, he was free to start living right. And here's one final contrast. Barabbas started the day in chains, but ended it as a free man. Let's just think about freedom for a moment. Again, it's a word you hear a lot, isn't it? Freedom is one of the many threads that runs throughout the Bible. And often during Jesus' ministry, he used the language of freedom to describe or explain what he was doing. I've come 
to set the captives free. He freed people by forgiving sins. But he also knew that chains could be physical, they could be mental, emotional, spiritual. But Jesus came to set people free. And in the story of Barabbas, we have a practical illustration of the fact that somebody who starts off in prison through the death of Jesus is set free. Wonder if thing rings any bells for you. What does freedom look like? Because we hear, we hear a lot of noise about freedom, even within our culture. I'm going to give you an illustration here. I don't know. This may be a bit silly, but this might, hopefully this makes sense to you. You're all wondering what's in this case. I'd like to, I'd like to kind of entertain you all by doing something completely unexpected. Um, but actually, it is a violin case, and it does have a violin in it. So here we go, one bow and one violin. And the violin's still got a bit of packaging on it, but that doesn't matter, does it? It'll sound all right. Oh, ah, I didn't think about that. Right, let's just see if I can get the violin under my chin without, there we go. So, violin, like it? Nothing like a well-played violin, is there? And that's nothing like a well-played violin. The violin needs setting free because of the packaging that came with it. So if I just remove the packaging and try again, I should get a better sound this time. That's all you're getting, by the way. That's all I can do. But listen, here's the point, friends. The violin is now free. But it's free to be a violin. It's not free to be a trombone or a guitar. You wouldn't try turning it into a drum. It wouldn't last very long if you did. It was created to be a violin... I've now set it free to be a violin. But it doesn't want to try and be anything else because it needs to be free to be what it was created to be. Do you know, we live in a culture which is very confused about this. Um, it's what I like to call one of, the, one of the Disney effects where we're constantly told, you can be whatever you want to be. All you have to do is keep going. You have to keep working. Well, I'm sorry, you can't be whatever you want, you want to be. But you can be what Jesus created you to be. That's tremendous news. Don't try and be something you're not. I mean, look, it's going to take me all my time to be the me that God created to be. I haven't got time to try and be anybody else. And you haven't either. So I'm not going to try and be somebody I'm not. But... Sin holds us back. Sin can spoil the image of God that lives within me and stop me from being free to be who I was meant to be. So, my challenge to you is, are you living in freedom today? Does it ring any bells? Are you worried 
about who you are? Are you worried about who God made you to be? Would you rather be somebody else? Do you get frustrated that things aren't happening in an area of life that really is not where you've got any gifting to influence or position to influence? Just be who you are and be where God's called you to be. Fulfill that, and if we all fulfill that together, we will find that God is using us to make a difference. But we can get snared again. We can get snared. In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So by the end of that Good Friday, Barabbas had got his freedom and the chance to be who God had created him to be. Now, if that's not amazing grace, as we sung earlier, I don't know what is. Amazing grace, unfailing love that you would take. Do you know what? I think we should sing that again at the end, actually. That's that song we started with because it's perfect for today and for this story. So all of this, all that we've been talking about is because Jesus took the place of Barabbas. But in doing so, he also took my place and he took yours. It's vital that we understand the depth of God's love. It's vital that we don't see the cross and the substitution of God as some sort of vindictiveness. I don't know if some of you may have heard um, sometimes Christians misinterpret the cross as a sign of an angry and vindictive God who needs to be appeased. That's not it. That's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. In Romans, Paul writes this, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man didn't come to serve, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did it for Barabbas, he's done it for you, and he's done it for me. So there we have it. That's Barabbas. At the start of the day, in chains, sentenced to die and living the wrong way. But by the end of the day, free, with a life to live in front of him and the opportunity to start living God's way. We have no idea whether Barabbas took that opportunity. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the opportunity, the potential, the invitation was there for him. It was real. And the same opportunity, the same potential, the same invitation is here for us. Why don't we just pray? Lord, we can hardly put into words everything that we see and feel in our hearts about the depth of your love for us. We run out of words, really. To, to say thank you and to, to just describe it. But, Lord, we're just so grateful. And Lord, even as 
even as in your, your wisdom and, and, the, and the way the whole thing turned out in your sovereignty, Lord, you caused Jesus to take the place of a common criminal. Lord, so we recognize, Lord, that we too needed our sins forgiving. But Lord, that you through your, your death, through your sacrifice for us, Lord, you paved the way for us to come back to you. You paved the way for us to be forgiven of our sins. You paved the way, Lord, for us to live in freedom. You paved the way for us to live right. Lord, so we bless you and we celebrate that fact as we come to the end of our, our time together. Do you know, let me just say, if you're in this hall this morning and you've never responded to Jesus, you can do that this morning. Because what we've been talking about isn't just for Christians. If you're not a Christian this morning, this message is for you.